Hello and welcome back to SLT Time. Our first six episodes received a lot of love and engagement from our listeners and we are so grateful to those of you who continue to support and share our content. You may have noticed we took a little break from releasing episodes and that is because we decided to take some time to plan the next block of episodes for you, ensuring they consist of conversations we feel are imperative to have in our speech and language therapy and wider allied health professional world. We are also collaborating with other amazing platforms on the side, such as at SLTs of Colour on Instagram and at of Colour on Twitter, on projects and hope to interact with our listeners more over the next few months. So keep an eye out for all of this. So now we are back with another episode, starting with our first one this season on racial bias and the impact of them in the workplace. Your hosts for this episode include Saha. Just a little wave. <laughs> uh, Veronica and myself, Tyber. And we are also joined by our special guests, Iman and Shomina. So, my name is Iman. I'm a speech and language therapist that qualified about a year ago. Uh, and I work in adults and pediatrics and across the NHS and privately. Um, as I was telling you guys earlier, I was just very indecisive and I wanted to do a bit of everything. Um, so, yeah, that's me. I'm Shamina Rabi. I'm founder of Unlocking Language, so I have my own private practice in East London. I've been running that for about eight years, but I've been in the profession for 16 years. So I'm probably the dinosaur in this group, as I said at the beginning. Um, and we provide uh, independent speech and language therapy to adults and children across London. Before we talk about the definition of racial bias, I thought it would be useful to talk a little bit about the psychology behind how a racial bias is actually formed. Um, so our brain is responsible in helping us make sense of the world around us by making connections and associations between what we see and what appropriate response needs to be taken. Um, so I'm sure everyone's heard of like the fight or flight response and that's completely based on um, uh, the responsibility of our brain to protect us in, in um, sight of danger. Um, and that we do that by creating heuristics, which refers to rules of thumb that our brains create. Um, and it helps us to navigate the world around us quickly without taking up time to determine what is safe and what is unsafe in every situation, which saves us time by reducing our reaction and processing times. Unfortunately, this ability of ours means we naturally extend it to concepts which can be harmful to our society, for example, race. Our consumption of media, news and TV shows and films enables us to create these heuristics around race without us even realising, leading to stereotypes of racism communities. I think it's important that we define what racial bias is. Um, so it's a kind of a form of implicit bias. Um, we all have these um, and they are kind of our attitudes, stereotypes that directly affect our decision making, our understanding and our behaviour. Um, so it's quite deeply embedded in the way that we think, judge others and make decisions. Um, and, you know, those judgments can be on different characteristics like um, race, age, ethnicity, appearance. Um, and these are things I think it's really important that we discuss today how we think that they might impact on, on our service users, on ourselves. Um, and then kind of it would be good, quite good to see you know, what you guys maybe have experienced, negative or positive. Um, there's a lot of research recently that shows 
that lots of these are based on early life experiences and um, the media news programming um, and I think there was some recent research that showed kind of negative implicit attitudes um, of people of colour may also contribute to the racial disparities in health and healthcare. So based on you know the the definition or the um idea of how racial bias has been formed that we've just talked about um do you have any experiences or any perspectives from working as an slt either as an independent independent practice or in the nhs that that you might think has a relation to this well i mean i think when i when i was listening to that um and i know we're talking about our, our work our time at work but i think it sort of takes me back to my own childhood because I think that sort of shapes us in a lot of ways of who we are, not just as, you know, in our personal lives, but even professionally. And as you can tell from the accent, I didn't grow up here. <laughs> um, and I'm very much a third culture kid, um, you know, born in Belgium, partly raised in the States, partly raised in Dubai, moved here, British by nationality. I just throw people off. Um, and so when I, came here and after studying and sort of going on placements, I think the thing that really struck me was, you know, it, I was really blessed to have those opportunities to grow up around people from all different backgrounds and experience life in less diverse sort of areas and more diverse areas and to learn from other people. Um, and I think a lot of the experiences I've had um, that sort of come under this racially biased sort of heading, I think sometimes I think it's just a lack of experience and exposure and, you know, when you don't get the opportunity to meet people um, and grow up around other people when your views of the world are being formed and shaped, I think that can really have a huge impact on how you relate to people. Um, so that's sort of what came to my mind when you were, when you were reading that. Yeah. Definitely, that's a great point, and I think exposure is, is a massive um, factor in breaking down these racial biases that, that we make, because I think the reality is, is that we're not sat here pointing fingers and saying, you have a racial bias and you have a racial bias. The reality is we all have a racial bias, um, and like communities benefit off of the oppression and benefit off of the racial biases we create of another community that's something that you know i've had to reflect on myself as a south asian against you know the anti-blackness that i've experienced and i've seen in the community against black communities and so everyone has a racial bias and it's exactly because of what we've watched and haven't had the opportunity to i suppose break it down by being exposed to different kinds of people um, and I suppose what university was not, was a great opportunity for me to, to break that down because you meet so many different types of people. I think we're, we're in an era now where different thinking and innovation is kind of power to, it's power and it's key to secure, you know, bottom line results and the unconscious preferences that we have for people who are like us severely challenge our intentions to create a diversified and inclusive workplace. So I think the un understanding our own unintended preferences enables us to take more full control of decisions and harnessing the potential of diversity and innovative teams. So I have quite a large team. We've got about 20 plus therapists on the team. And um, I have, I suppose I've heard more about racial biases from them than I feel I've experienced. I think being the first generation of the immigrant parents who moved to the UK, um, you know, uh, 
40, 40 plus years ago, um, I kind of grew up with, well, this is the way it is and you just have to fight your corner. So I didn't really think about, am I not getting this because of my color or um, have I not got the skills because of my color? Um, I just sort of fought my corner all the way through. And it's only been very recently when I've been hearing these conversations that I've started to think, actually, I remember when this situation took place or when someone made a comment about the way I spoke. I thought it was quite funny at that time, although I became quite reserved. Um, so I, I think the conversations that are happening now are really making others think about the experiences they've had and that actually it was probably a result of racial bias. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I it's only like in the last year or so that I've really been thinking about this, but you know, now I think about it, I think back to stuff that was happening like when I was at university and you know, now I reflect on it, I can see how, um, you know, I was discriminated against and things like this. But yeah, it's strange that um, sometimes you don't really see it at the time. And it's just afterwards when you reflect on it, when you learn more about what racial biases are, what discrimination is, it's only then that you can really reflect on it. But I think, you know, it is such a big issue that, um, you know, these unconscious biases, which to be honest, I do think a lot of white people don't actually realize they have. Because I think, you know, I'm white. So growing up, I just, you know, I was kind of taught that whole colorblindness thing and stuff. And a lot of people that I know um, still believe that. They still think, you know, they should have this colorblind approach, which we now know is not appropriate. Um, so I think there is a lot of white people who actually don't understand um, that they have these biases that, um, you know, we shouldn't be using the colorblind approach. And I think, you know, when it comes to things like interviews, you know, when you go for a speech and language therapy job and you go to the interview and the whole panel is white, um, British, you know, um, they have these obviously unconscious biases, which they probably don't even realize they have, um, which just puts you at a disadvantage from the start, really. Um, and, you know, it's not because you don't have the skills it's because they have these they just want someone to look like them maybe someone to you know have the same kind of background and experiences um i think a lot of people are unconsciously looking for that and they don't realize so i think um they just have to reflect on their own conscious biases own unconscious biases and um yeah but i don't know how to even get people to do that really that's a really a great point that you made veronica um because it you know when you said um they want people to look like them i think i mentioned this in an episode uh, a while back but i went to the um us CSLT student day in in december just before COVID here and you know it was great but there was a um a panel of managers there and one of the managers said i'm gonna hire you if you know you're bubbly like me you're this like me and you look like me and i think it just slipped out of of her mouth and she was a white you know blonde lady and I was sat here thinking, well, I don't look like you. So if I, that I thought that was a reflection of her unconscious racial bias that 
fair enough you want someone as, as confident in you as you and as bubbly as you or whatever but I can't change the way I look and I think that reflects the the difficulties that a lot of black and brown um, people go through in terms of employment processes because when your employers already have a bias uh, a racial bias against you um, it's they're setting you up for, for failure so yeah it was a really interesting point Veronica and can I just add to that, Taba, that and that's one of the reasons why I've worn a sari today to the podcast, because um, I'm interested for, um, you know, our, our white allies and um, white colleagues who are watching today to think about the way that we look. Um, we think about it twice. Which one of us would wear a sari or an ethnic dress to an interview? No, not me. Awesome. Yeah. So um, it's, it's interesting how we're also almost not leaving our identity, but we're scared mm-hmm. about um, being more proud and being more proactive with our identity because we want to fit into what the, uh, you know, what the managers want, what they, what we should look like, what should we, what we should sound like. And that's all being created because of the unconscious bias. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think on, I think that would be a great segue into talking about uh, the impact of racial bias so um i did some research looking into sort of what stats are out there in terms of how racial bias is impacting uh, professions and how um workplace uh, diversity is impacted specifically in the nhs um but you know, not surprisingly, couldn't find a single drop of information on speech and language therapy. This is a really under-researched um, area. But I think it's still interesting to look at um, the uh, research that's existing in terms of in the field of medicine, especially nursing and amongst doctors. So, sorry. So, um between 2012 and 2017, 1.1% of um, BAME doctors were referred to the GMC compared to 0.5% of white doctors. So um, so basically people were, there was a disproportionate number of BAME doctors that were uh, referred to sort of the disciplinary pr- process compared to uh, white doctors. And uh, this was WISE 2019. Um, doctors who have qualified outside the UK have a two and a half times higher rate of being referred to the regulus, regulator compared with UK graduates. Um, this was comparative to what Keogh uh, found in 2017. Uh, and they said, the figures supplied by the NHS Digital show that 261 out of 261 directors of nursing job roles in the NHS trusts and clinical commissioning groups across England, only six people, like six people out of uh, 261, have categorised themselves as being black, Asian or mixed heritage. So on the one hand, we have a disproportionate number of people being um sent into sort of disciplinary processes and also a ridiculously low number of people who are higher up in in their field. Um, Foster in 2019 also recently found that uh, BAME staff are 1.24 times relatively more likely to enter the formal disciplinary process compared with white staff um, in terms of doctors as well. So I think this... um, 
begs us to have this discussion of how racial bias isn't just creating an uncomfortable workplace environment, but it's actually um, prohibiting people from um, progressing throughout their careers compared to their white um, colleagues. So, you know, what do you think about that? I mean, when I, when I sort of heard those stats and, you know, they were from the NHS, um, I think it really begs the also discussion about the difference between working in the NHS and working privately and the types and, and the dynamic and the diversity you have. Um, because I've definitely spoken to SLTs who say, you know what, I got tired of trying to fight my corner because of my race. You know, you can challenge me on my clinical ability. You can ask me to justify why I did what I did. You can tell me that I need to go learn more. But if this is going to be a race thing, I can't win it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting that in the NHS, at the managerial le level, we're losing BAME representation. And I wonder if that's because people just sort of get fed up of trying to fight their corner and they move into places where actually they can progress because there is more diversity. The norm is to have diversity and therefore they're at a more level playing ground. And now we're actually looking at their ability as a clinician, which is what it should be across the board. Um, that's really interesting, actually. So, Iman and Chomini, you both work in independent practices. So, would you say, compared to the NHS, you find that there's more diversity, there's more, um, I don't know, open culture around, around race within independent practices as opposed to NHS? I've definitely found that. And I think part of it is the, the recruitment process. So, the recruitment process and the independent practice is an open recruitment process. Um, it's not your typical person specification, desirable, preferred. Um, instantly, when you look at something like that, I remember looking at those, it's quite daunting. Um, and unfortunately, many women and perhaps men as well in the BAME community have got an element of imposter syndrome. We know we, we can do it, we can do it, but for some reason, we feel we can't do it or we're not good enough. And we, we well, the reason is, um, you know, from the background um, that we've come from and the challenges that we've had to go through um, being kind of the third, second and third generation in the UK. Um, so I think the open recruitment allows for transparency. So definitely for me as, a, as the CEO at Unlocking Language, our recruitment process is very open. So initially it's just a CV and um, a cover letter, simple cover letter. And then when that comes through, I speak to every single candidate over the phone just to get an idea of who they are, what they like, what they've done. Um, and I think instantly people feel a bit more comfortable with that rather than a formal letter from somebody they don't know. And then they've been told, like, come to a panel with four people and nobody has an Asian name or a black name. So again, everyone starts feeling a bit daunted. Um, and then once we've had that conversation, um, I often say, okay, have a think about whether this role will be suitable for you. I'll also have a think about if you're right for us. And then the next stage would be an interview process. And again, that's very comfortable and transparent. And I always make sure we have a band five or six as well as myself or a band eight present, just because I think it, it's good to have a mix of, um, uh, a mix of, um, therapists at different band levels so that the person interviewed usually about five or six feels comfortable um without it just being a manager's there and um, so i think the fact that we're that we can be transparent we talk and, and one thing that i do do is i look for the gaps in the cv so um it's interesting you say that about 
um, people from BAME communities going through disciplinaries because we have taken on a number of therapists that have failed probation in other places and they've all been from the BAME community um, and or, or, or they've left jobs very quickly within six months they've left and gone somewhere else and left and then come and, and eventually um, sort of you know they, their CV has landed on my desk and I suppose because I've come from that background from that culture I can see things that maybe other people can't see okay what's going on here let's dig a little bit further and it's interesting because at one interview one therapist was really open and said look I've got real anxiety I have to have counseling I've had a really tough time with my dad my brother's been really difficult these are kind of all issues that some people do face in the BAME community but I think if you can be open about it at interview level and start having those discussions it allows for the dialogues to continue rather than being someone that we're not and we often go into an interview with I can do this and I can do that we don't really talk about ourselves so I think that process has to change and that's a really fantastic point that you've made actually because at interview level having to talk about that to a potential manager or line manager who who you're not sure if they understand all of the struggles that, that a black or an ethnic minority might may go through because, you know, sharing that part of yourself, you're either sharing it to someone who's going to be super supportive, who believes in your clinical skills, regardless of all of these confounding variables that are going on, or they're going to see it as excuses because they think everyone has the same struggles, but they don't. The reality is, is, is that black and ethnic minority people do go through sometimes different and challenging struggles that perhaps the other candidates that are that are applying or that have graduated that i've graduated with haven't exactly that's you know comes from socioeconomic backgrounds um family life as a second generation immigrant i know that i have struggles that i don't think um other peers of mine have could probably ever imagine and that's tough to bring it up at interview I think you're so right that it would be so valuable it would create a tone where I can actually you know I don't have to leave things at home I can I can bring them to work and be understood and, and we have to because I think our mental health at work impacts us at home and our mental health at home <laughs> impacts us at work I know we all try and get the wonderful work-life balance but it's all integrated at some level um, I think it's one of the things that I've learned um, being a manager over so many years is that once we employ someone, um, the first day starts and I usually go off site, we'll go for a coffee and I'll really try and find out about who they are. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. I think people get too stuck on, so tell me about your work experience. Did you do pediatrics? Did you do adults? Are you tracky trained? Are you dysphagia trained? We get really bogged into the clinical skills. Yeah. But to be a really good therapist, Yes, clinical skills are super important, there's no doubt. But um, we, we need to have the resilience, we need to have um, strength, we need to be assertive at times, we need to have confidence. These are all these skills which many BAME communities unfortunately don't acquire. And very interestingly, we had a band five that had interviewed and was very, very nervous at interview level. And again, that's another thing that I'd like to perhaps just quickly mention, which is um, I'd love to see more support being given um for the BAME community around interviewing and selling yourself because I don't think we realize how much we're worth we we just don't have that sense and again I think it's because of the way that our communities have evolved over the last 30-40 years um I've lost my train of thought now which was um yes about the band five and um 
super nervous and um, you know she talked about lots of issues that had happened and she went through counseling and I actually thought she was really brave to bring it up at interview level because it is scary to bring that up and think okay maybe they won't hire me now because I've said I go for this but actually that's what, what sort of won it over because I thought you know what I love your brave your courage your strength your honesty your transparency and she's now been promoted um she, she's now a, a, a you know much more senior in the company and um Interestingly, we went for tea the other day and she said to me, I was brought up in a community where girls were told to just be quiet and not talk about things. And so I just did that throughout uh, college, university. And then it's when I came here that I realized that I'm a woman, I'm an Asian woman, I can talk about things, um, I should be more vocal. And she's now developed the courage to do that. But that was such an interesting point that she brought up being raised to kind of think that women. Her words were women should just shut up, women, women should just be quiet. And that's come across her, her years of sort of studying and going into speech therapy. Yeah. That's so fantastic to hear that, that she climbed the ranks and now she, she's doing great. That's, what we, that's more what we want to hear. That's so great. And, and your experience of, you know, over the last year of, of qualifying in, in September, and now it's one year into, into the um, industry. Um, what's been your experience in terms of have you, have you felt like can you talk when something goes wrong in the workplace or what is the support that's available to someone who's just qualified? Um, so I, I really do work in a very supportive trust. Um, and, you know, I've been really lucky in my supervisor and that I have always felt like I have a space to air out when something goes wrong. And I think, Oh, that really didn't feel right or something like that. But I think going back to something we were sort of talking about earlier was that, you know, when someone hasn't experienced racial biases themselves, it's really hard for that person to be able to almost know what to say or how to make it better. And, you know, I think, and and fair enough on them, the best thing some people can think of is, well, it, it wasn't racial. It, it was really not. It was just something else. You know, they, have, they were having a bad day. Um, but you have to keep sort of your own self in check and think, no, it really wasn't them just having a bad day. Um, and I think it's really important for BAME staff to support BAME staff. Yes, we want our, our white colleagues to start understanding what we go through and um, what our struggles are, but it's one of those things. It's like if someone has cancer and you haven't, there's only so much you can say to really understand and support that person. That person will actually get a lot more support from a cancer support group. So similarly, I think we as a BAME community need to start supporting each other because, you know, my parents always brought us up to be really confident in who we are and to embrace who we are ethnically, um, racially. And if we can, as a community, realize that just because someone doubts our abilities or doesn't give us the opportunities, it doesn't make us a less, you know, a less good clinician. We're not any worse we can't be defined by what people what labels people put on us and I think if we embrace who we are as clinicians as individuals as members of society and we run with that with confidence and we and we identify who we are for ourselves I think that that's where the power is mm -hmm. because when someone sees someone who is a bit different than them but is really proud of it and you know just charges through almost um I think, you know, it, it, that's actually where you build the bridges and where you 
you know, you can get uncomfortable. I mean, I've had so many experiences where I had found it really difficult to get on with someone. Um, and I did feel like there was a racial element to it, but it always works out better when you just persist with it and, um, you know, just keep being who you are at the front of it. That's really, that's really lovely to hear actually. And from a completely selfish and, and um, point of view is that I'm starting my first ever like band five job on Monday and I'm excited but nervous because and I'm nervous because of the workplace you know culture I'm I'm thinking what team am I going into you know how much am I going to have to like push myself down or um how much am I going to have to deal with microaggressions all of these things but I think hearing that was really lovely and really inspirational that that we do have to support each other and I think I found um really great support in through the SLT time uh, team but also by speaking to all of our guests including you guys that have come on today and um it sounds like I'm wrapping up but I'm not wrapping up by the way <laughs> but um yeah it just it just made me realize that yeah I'm excited but I'm a bit nervous and I think that's quite quite natural but one thing you said also um Iman was you know BAME colleagues need to support BAME colleagues and something that came to mind was that there are a lot of black and ethnic minority SLTs who are the only people of color in a team of, of, of white SLTs. And so when you don't have that shared lived experience in your workplace, how is that impacting the mental health of our, of our speech and language therapists? Um, that's something that you know I'm personally concerned about is that I know yeah. that a lot of fragmented speech and language therapists who aren't support who are part of support networks who can't really speak to anyone about what they're what they're going through at work if they're going through anything um, so I, I hope they're able to tune in and, and, and listen to conversations that we're having here um, and I do think that you, you you know you have the potential to feel quite isolated and I think I've had moments of that you know, where I'm in a meeting and I look around and I think I'm literally the only person who's not white over here. And, and you know, and, and you have this moment of being a bit conscious, like, oh, I wonder, I, I do just wonder what they think. Yeah. You know, maybe they think nothing and that's, and that's great. Um, but you do have this moment of, oh, I, I'm different. Mm -hmm. um, even though I'm sitting around colleagues who are also all band fives, band sixes, we've all had similar levels of experience. Yeah. Um, but you, you all of a sudden feel like, oh, actually, I need to maybe fight my ground a little bit, or actually, I need to back off. You don't want to be that loud brown person in the room. Yeah, you really don't. You don't <laughs> um, the, the aggressive, you know, yeah. red card lover person in the room, do you? Like, I was that person at uni, and I, I felt people's eyes roll every time I put my hand up and said, well, what about this? What about that? Yeah. And it's tough. It's like you have the responsibility on your shoulders, and you can't even shift it. Um, but one thing I, I would like to ask is um, you and you, your Iman and Veronica is that you guys are you know visibly Muslim. There's there's almost a corner that you can't even hide in. And as someone who wore the hijab for for ten eleven years of my life, and now that I'm not wearing it, I can see a huge difference in my lived experience between how people talk to me and how people look at me. And so I suppose you know. How does how do you think being visibly Muslim impacts your work, if at all, or being an SLT? Um, well, I think for me, I, I think it's it's actually the best thing for me that I'm visibly Muslim and that there's no doubt about it because it just forces that confidence. It just means that I know when I walk in the room, that race card is out there. We're not questioning it. Um, and 
you know, people have always said, oh, you know, if you get discriminated at work or at places, well, why do you keep wearing it? And it's for me, for many reasons, but for one thing that it really does for me is it, it reminds me to be who I am. You know, there's, I'm not gonna, I can't, there's nothing to hide behind, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think it, it, it's a lot to do with my identity. Um, and yeah, it does mean that sometimes you have to fight battles that you wouldn't if you weren't wearing it. Um, it does mean that before you've even said anything, someone's already judged you subconsciously or consciously and then they hear my accent and then they're just like whoa what is going on with this person um but you know it I think it just forces me as an individual to just be who I am and be like I'm gonna do what I need to do I'm here as a clinician you can work out your your subconscious thoughts, but I'm going to go ahead and work. <laughs> and you come back to me when you're ready to have this discussion. <laughs> I love that. Well, yeah, um, I've just started my first job, so I haven't really experienced much yet. But um, I do know just from seeing children, you know, being around children at the park or in different kind of groups and activities I take my children to, um, they do often ask questions about why I'm wearing a hijab you know what is a Muslim I mean I think children are really interested in this kind of thing um, and it's fine if they ask the question you just ask you you just answer it and it's like a learning experience for them isn't it um, but in terms of colleagues um, I'm I think I'm the only Muslim in the workplace I mean I'm the only one that wears a hijab and um, I think it has played a really big part in me not getting a job, you know, yeah. before this, um, because, you know, it does feel very strange to be um, the only Muslim around. I mean, I don't know any other Muslim speech and language therapists in the area, um, you know, and it's quite a big area. There are a lot of speech and language therapists, but I don't know a single other Muslim speech and language therapist in the area. and. I think, you know, just feeling quite nervous about going to interviews, I think that was a big thing for me. You know, I'm always like, oh, how should I wear the hijab? Should I wear it like a turban? Should I wear it like full hijab? You know, I get like really worried about this yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, am I going to look like too um, extremist if I wear certain things and stuff? You know? <laughs> Girl, it's all in the color. I sit there and I'm like, now, what color am I going to wear? Do you go subtle? Do you wear printed? <laughs> there's so much to think about yeah <laughs> but yeah I think it can maybe intimidate others just from you know like my family are not Muslim so I have a lot of conversations with non-Muslims about Islam and things so I have <laughs> I mean I think probably some of the most Islamic Islamophobic things I've experienced are actually from my own family so I'm actually quite used to it so <laughs> it doesn't really yeah so I don't I don't suppose I get intimidated if I experience some Islamophobia but it's just a it's just that thing of you know people not wanting to give you the chance because they have these Islamic phobic subconscious biases I guess yeah. and I think that's where it's really important that we create opportunities for each other because as much as we can try and fight it and you know we try and shift their opinions when we go into an interview we do our best we be who we are but if we don't get a job because of that there's nothing you could have done really and maybe that isn't really the place you want to be to begin with mm -hmm. um but i think it's really important that all communities support people of their community we create opportunities for each other to grow because you know people you know 
as, as you say, Veronica, like trying to find a job and knowing that you didn't get it because of who you are or what you're wearing. Um, it's really tough because it means that you're not being judged for your clinical ability, which is what you're applying for that, you know, for that job. Um, so I, I, I do think that as much as, you know, there are things we need to have changed in society, I think there's so much we need to do for each other um, at the same time. Um, one question that I think um, we haven't touched upon yet, which I think is quite interesting, especially because we've we've got you know Shamina, who, who you've got you know your manager, who I want to ask if you know as SLTs we don't just experience racial bias from our colleagues or managers, but we may also experience them uh, from service users. So how as a manager do you do you ensure that you know we're providing support to speech and language therapists who may be experiencing that um amongst clients and service users and how would you advise other managers or other people who are who are um supervising speech and language therapists to support people who who come to you and, and tell you that they've gone through that i think if i so when i was on placement a uh, a month ago finishing off my final placement um i had a a speech language therapist who i was you know answering to she was she was my clinical educator and she was introducing this uh, service user to me um he had a traumatic bit brain injury and off the cuff she said oh by the way he's just a bit racist just a bit though and i was like okay <laughs> because i was going in alone to see him and i thought what does just a little bit racist mean? Because to you, it might be just a little bit racist, but to me, it might not be just a little bit racist. So, um, and I thought that immediately set the tone of, it's fine, I don't want to hear it, you know, just deal with it. He might say this, he might say that, but focus on your um, session plan and ensuring you execute it well. So I didn't feel like I had that space to come and say, well, I'm not sure if I'm 100% comfortable about going in to see him alone. Or um, or if something did happen, am I going to be able to come back and say, hi, like this happened, I need to reflect on this. Do I have that space to have that emotional, personal reflection, but also that professional reflection? Um, and to also have the choice. Because yeah. we see all these posters everywhere. If there's any verbal abuse, you'll be asked to leave. Well, racism is a form of abuse. Yeah. So if you're going to be there and you're going to be racist towards the therapist, we have the choice to leave that session and to not continue. Absolutely. And we can feel empowered to do that. So I think the key word here is empowerment. Um, we need to be we need to empower our therapists to feel that they have the choice and they can make the choice to come out and to feel safe yeah. that they've made that choice and not to be judged. And I think the big thing is we get really honed down with, oh, I made a mistake. Why did I do that? We get really dragged with one little thing. And that really, that makes a huge impact on all our decision-making. Um, and I think we shouldn't be penalized for it. It's, it's not a mistake. We need to learn from it. It's a learning process. So I think that's the kind of attitude that we need to, um, we need to be fostering yeah. uh, with the speech therapy teams. And it's interesting you say that because I often find that some of the therapists from the BAME community on my team was very apologetic, overly apologetic for making, it's not, not even a mistake, just for something that should have been done a different way. I'm really sorry, I'll do it again. Like, they'll just repeatedly say it. So I think, again, it's not, it's, they're not feeling empowered yeah. um, to be, okay, I made a mistake, I've got to learn from it and I've got to move on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's something that would be quite 
quite useful to try and foster that sort of um, environment. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, from from what you said and from from the experience that I had, I would want anyone who's listening who may be ever in charge of of, of a other speech language therapists, you know, NQPs or or whoever, um, is to understand that there's no such thing as soft racism and hard racism. You know, racism is racism. So if you know that there's a service user who has who makes offhand comments be explicit and tell them you know this might happen talk, talk to me about it how it affects you how do you feel about it before going into the session um and you know if you know of past comments they that they've made uh almost say explicitly what the nature of it is because you know you're either going to call me a, a trip like Paki or a curry muncher and those two things are still the same impact on me I still feel disrespected and I don't feel like I have the um, power to be assertive in a session when you're already being um, using racially charged language to me and I think super important to understand that racism is racism regardless of how um, I don't know soft it may seem so yeah I think that would lead us good on to practical ideas for SLTs and QPs, Sahar. Okay, so practical ideas. This is more for kind of um, newly qualified therapists, students, but also um, SLTs that are practicing. Um, I think kind of we've discussed lots about this before in lots of different other episodes as well, but just continuing to confront our own biases and stereotypes all the time. And um, when that stereotype comes to our um, mind is to kind of recognize it replace it somehow and also to reflect on why it's happened and um, something that's really helped me is considering how to respond to it kind of in an unbiased way um, another thing is kind of taking a different perspective having a bit more cultural humility rather than that competency that we've we've talked about as well um, and just chatting with your colleagues and other professionals that you might work with um, you know in different if you work in private or NHS you will you know you will hopefully be lucky enough to have a diverse workforce around you um, so use those people chat to them kind of get ideas um, and I would say kind of counteracting your own beliefs think about the experiences you've had but also kind of as a student SLT things that might have happened on placement like you were talking about um Tyber, and then kind of now when you're working as an SLT um you might have had kind of negative experiences along the way that impact the way that you work now um, and I can definitely say that because it's definitely it, it kind of comes to the forefront of the way you work um, and then, yeah, I would say kind of chatting with students that you end up supervising about implicit bias um, sharing your own learning experiences um, because that's not often a topic that you will discuss in university. So it's even more important to talk about it. Um, and yeah, kind of educating yourself around these issues. You know, Google is, you know, available, guys. <laughs> Anyone can do stuff. Um, familiarize yourself with issues surrounding racial gender socioeconomic um, inequalities in the communities also kind of it will depend on the where you work if you work in a really you know if you work in somewhere like London Birmingham you know I feel like you need to really understand how those sub communities work and get to know um, the clients that you'll work with the service users yeah 
and I think there was there was one point that I slid in there. Hope you don't mind. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, just through the the reading that I was doing, there was something that um, a, a nursing uh, team implemented to uh, sort of like battle racial bias, and it was called reverse mentorship. And I've included this because I thought it might be an interesting thing if anyone's listening to see is this something that they can introduce into their teams. And the the idea behind reverse mentorship is uh, where black and ethnic minority SLTs, regardless of um, banding or experience, um, they mentor um, senior speech and language therapists about microaggressions and wake workplace culture around race. And the whole idea is to create an open culture and conversation at work. It's um, adopting this uh, attitude of humility, I suppose, when it comes to senior speech and language therapists. Um, of course, having that more experience, more um, knowledge about speech and language therapy in terms of clinical skills, but accepting that as um, in terms of race, in terms of uh, living as a black and brown person, they may not have as much experience as a black and brown um, speech and language therapist, even if they're just band five first day at work. Um, so I thought that's something that, that maybe we can uh, start talking about or maybe thinking about um, more to implement possibly in our speech and language therapy world because I think I think I think that would be a great thing to see in teams um, it would just it would create a really nice environment at work. I, I love reverse mentorship I think it works really well um, and that's something that we're planning to implement from um, November in the team um, and it's not specifically to BAME but it's more around the senior managers having a band five mentoring um, around decision making, around oh well, have you thought about doing it this way? But it helps you to be more empathetic. It allows you to start thinking a little more about what the band five is thinking of uh, thinking about. So I think it works really well um, with sort of senior managers across speech and language yeah. therapy. And also, just completely even not rate like racial bias focused i think as students we are pushed through university thinking this is the new terminology this is the new research and when we go out to placements we're encouraged to pass that information on to our um you know clinical educators and i think in that reverse mentorship um environment and culture maybe would allow for that um passing information to sort of be pushed through the pipeline so reverse mentorship may have lots of advantages not just reducing uh, racial bias at work um so i think that is uh the episode so that's the end of our episode thank you so much to iman and shamina for joining us and um, today we discussed all about racial biases um, and we hope that you will kind of continue the conversation with us um, via Twitter, Instagram um, and just share your thoughts um, and experiences wherever you feel comfortable. Um, and join us again for our next episode which will be coming up um, very soon and thank you. Be sure to follow our Twitter and our Instagram SLT Timed at SLT Timed SLT Time to keep up to date with new episode releases. And that's the SLT for today!